We'll be reading from John chapter 16, verses 16 through 28. A little while and you will no longer behold me, and again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not behold me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? And so they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, A little while and you will not behold me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more, for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. And in that day you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language. But you will plainly, will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me. And have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for sending the Son. Thank you that he was obedient and came and revealed you to us. Thank you that you have received him back into heaven, and he has sent his spirit to be with us and in us. Help us to understand these words of our Lord. Help us to experience them. Pray for Tom as he declares your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I have a a question for you, but nobody gets to point fingers at anyone but yourself. Who's the least mechanical person in the room? I see several. All right, I'm, I'm going I'm to pick on Steve because I know him really well. Let's say that I, I met you out in the hallway right after this service, and I, I said to you that, that I had just inherited a big parcel of land over here on 190, and, and I wanted you to build for me a 20-story office complex on it. And then, and then I gave you, I gave you a hammer. I gave you a hammer, and I said, "Let me know when you're finished." How would you respond to that? Would you, would you, be all set to just go dive into that assignment with your new hammer? Well, of course you wouldn't, and you would know that you were ridiculously unequipped to do a task of that magnitude. In fact, you would probably go find Debbie and ask her if she had noticed lately that my elevator wasn't going all the way to the top. (laughs) Do you ever catch yourself 
responding pretty much that same way to the assignment that God has given to you. You say, all right, Lord, so you've, you've appointed me and the rest of your kids to go and bear lots of excellent fruit for you, to make disciples of all the nations, to advance your kingdom on earth. You've commissioned me to love all these other kids, even when they're not so lovable. You've appointed me to show you off in this world so that when lost people look at me, they're attracted to you. And you've instructed me to do all of that joyfully. Well, Lord, if that's the assignment, you're going to have to give me a whole lot more than you've given me thus far. In fact, until you do, I'm just going to have to scale that assignment back so that it lines up with the equipping that you have given to me. Is that okay with you? Do you guys ever catch yourself thinking in those terms about the amazing assignment that God has given to you and to us as His people? As I look back over Jesus' final address to His disciples here in chapters 13 to 16 before He went to the cross... And I thought about our passage this morning. It finally registered in my dense head that there are two key things that Jesus is presenting to His disciples in these chapters. Two things He's presenting to His disciples. First is the assignment. Second is the equipment. The assignment and the equipment. There are four chapters, chapters 13 to 16. Two of those are assignment chapters, and two of them are equipment chapters. In chapter 13, what we know as the foot washing passage, Jesus was telling his disciples what their assignment was toward one another. They were to love each other, they were to serve each other as he had loved and served them. Then, two chapters later, in chapter 15, he told them what their assignment was toward the world. They were to be His branches plugged into the vine, producing lots of good sticky fruit for Him. Sticky meaning fruit that remains stuck to the vine. And they were to do so in the midst of being hated and persecuted. For His sake, of course. Now, that's chapter 13 and 15. In chapter 14 and 16, he tells them the equipment that they've been given to accomplish those assignments. And the equipment in chapter 16 is essentially the same. Some of you guys who have really studied the Gospel of John for a while, when you hear those two chapters referred to, John 14 and John 16, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Yes, the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you were to look in any theology of the Holy Spirit, in any systematic theology textbook, most uh, overwhelmingly, the passage that will get the most traction on that theme is those two chapters. You know why? Because that's God's equipment for His assignment. That's what He has given us to do, what He has commissioned us to do. It's a person. Jesus loved these 11 men with a love greater than any they had ever known. 
Beginning in chapter 13, it says, Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the uttermost. And He knew them far better than they knew themselves. He kept proving that to them. On this final night before He went to the cross to die in their place and in our place, Jesus wanted them to know that they were going to be equipped for the assignment that He had given to them beyond their wildest imagination. Instead of lacking what they would need to do this amazing assignment, they would have everything that they needed in excess. It was as if God had handed to them the key to these vast warehouses full of resources that went way beyond whatever they they were going to need. He had given them all of the knowledge that they would need to put those resources to work. He had given them more and better help than they would ever be able to make full use of. And along with all those things, He had given them His own joy. Twice in this discourse, Jesus says, I've written these things to you that you may have my joy and that your joy may be complete. See, that's what Jesus wanted them and us to know before he went to the cross. Last Sunday, we peeled open the gift wrapping on the first of three marvelous gifts that Jesus promised to his disciples here in John 16. Three gifts that would turn their sorrow into exceedingly great joy. God has bestowed these same three gifts on all of us whom He has made His children through faith in Jesus Christ. All three equip us to do what Jesus redeemed us to do. And all three can be summed up in just three words. The Holy Spirit. Each of these three gifts focuses on a different person of the Trinity. Last week we saw the first gift. We are powerfully equipped by the Spirit. Now that really is the umbrella gift. The other two kind of fall in and under that gift. We have been powerfully equipped by the Spirit. The second gift is that we are always beholding the Son. And the third is we are wonderfully loved by the Father you see again that all three persons of the Trinity are represented here. But these gifts all come to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Next week, there's one other point that we're going to look at. I decided to break this one out into a separate message because it's so important. And that is that none of this depends on us. First, This morning is the second gift. We are always beholding the Son. In verse 16, Jesus says to His eleven disciples, A little while, and you will no longer behold Me. And again a little while, and you will see Me. Now the disciples, as usual, were kind of puzzled and confused by what Jesus was telling them. So they went aside out of His hearing, and they were talking amongst themselves about these statements. Verse 18 says, They said, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. That was a common malady for these guys. They felt a compelling need for clarity, especially on this particular night, based on all that Jesus had been saying to them. They didn't get it yet, but they knew something big was 
about to happen. And the intensity of their perceived need for that clarity was going to be bumped up about a thousand notches a little later that night and the next day. But the clarity that they earnestly desired would not come just yet. And beloved, that was by design. That lack of clarity was by design at this point. I think that becomes very clear if you tally up the number of times in John's Gospel when Jesus left his disciples scratching their heads. You think he didn't know how they were going to respond? That he didn't know what they would and wouldn't understand? In John 13, 19, after prophesying Judas' betrayal, he said to them, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur you may believe that I am. A little earlier in this chapter, John 16.4, he said, These things I have spoken to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. See, he's saying, I'm telling you these things beforehand, not so that you will understand them perfectly now, but so that when they happen, then you'll understand them and you'll believe. You know what these men needed far more than flawless knowledge about what was going to happen later? They needed humility before God. And they needed utter dependence on Christ. Just like you and I do. In all of life, whatever God withholds is just as gracious It is just as intentional as what He provides. That's a good principle for us to bear in mind. And God knows that you and I need humility before Him and we need utter dependence on Him a whole lot more than we need to know everything that's going to happen later. This is what we need now. As the disciples wrestled among themselves outside of Jesus' hearing about what he meant by his a little while statements, Jesus, as always, knew exactly what they were discussing. You just can't hide your conversations from the God of the universe. So he responded to their ponderings, but as usual, (laughs) he didn't exactly answer the question that they were asking because it wasn't the question for which they needed an answer. He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And then he said, Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. Notice that Jesus did not tell them when he would see them again. He didn't tell them where they would be or what they would be doing when he saw them again. He simply told them that he would see them again and they would behold him. And when that happened, their sorrow would be turned to joy. That's what they needed to know that night. That when he went to the cross, that wasn't the end. 
And then Jesus said, a little while you'll see me. And when he said that, to which, to which future appearance of Christ to the disciples was he referring? He didn't specify here, did he? Pastors and theologians have been batting that around ever since these 11 men started wrestling with it that night. Was Jesus saying, tomorrow I'm going to die and you guys won't see me for a couple of days and then you will see me resurrected. And when you do, your terrible sorrow will be turned to exceedingly great joy. Or was he saying, in about 43 days, I'm going to leave this earth bodily I'm going to ascend back to my rightful glory at my Father's side, and after that, you won't see me for a little while. It'll seem like a long while to you, but it's really just a little while in the grand scheme of things. And then you will see me again. And when you do, I'm going to bring with me the place that I've been preparing for you so that you can live with me and my Father with the Spirit forever, then your sorrow will be turned into unending joy. Or, was he saying, in about 43 days I'm going to leave here, I'm going to return to my Father, and you won't see me for a little while, but then my Father and I will send the Holy Spirit to you, and He will pitch His tent in you, and when He does, you will see me far more Surely and fully and personally and vividly than you've seen me the whole time I've been with you, walking with you on this earth. So which is it? Was Jesus talking about the first of those three scenarios or the second or the third? Some of you who know me pretty well have already guessed my answer. My answer is yes. All of the above. It never ceases to amaze me how much of our Christian literature agonizes over how to decide between two or more possible fulfillments of an amazing promise God gives us in the Bible when when all of those possible fulfillments are well supported in Scripture and perfectly in keeping with God's revealed plan of redemption. Why do we feel so compelled to constrain God to one outworking of a promise as beautiful as this? It's like saying, okay, God is mighty to save, but the only salvation He gives us is a ticket to heaven. No, He saves all the time in all kinds of ways. Let's think about those three scenarios. And by the way, those aren't the only ones, but... When the resurrected Jesus appeared to these 11 men and to many other of his followers after his crucifixion, was their sorrow turned to joy? You bet it was. So many things that he had said to them finally became clear. The resurrection transformed their uncertainty about many, many things into crystal clarity. From that moment forward, they knew that they served a conquering king who had conquered the greatest enemy of all, the curse of sin, which is death. There wasn't much else that they would be able to imagine 
that he couldn't conquer. In fact, there was nothing. Okay, how about the second scenario? When Jesus returns again to reconcile the things in heaven with the things on earth, when he puts an end to the curse of sin and to sin itself, when he brings with him the place he has prepared for us to dwell with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Bride forever, will the sorrows of this life, this life that we are living under the curse, be put away from us and replaced with great unending joy? You bet they will. That very hope is the anchor of our souls every single day of our lives on this earth as His children. That hope, by its very nature, is unseen. That, was, that point was made in the worship this morning from Romans chapter 8. It's the hope of a transcendent glory that's been deferred until later. In Romans chapter 8, Paul likens the entirety of our time here under the curse to the pains of childbirth. He uses the very same illustration that Jesus used here in John chapter 16. So I kind of think they're talking about the same thing. He speaks of our glorification day that's coming as the much anticipated redemption day for us and for all creation. The day on which that unseen hope will become perfectly seen and marvelously realized forever. On that glorious day, we who have been made heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ will enter into the rest of our eternal inheritance. And that inheritance is God Himself. That's why we're called heirs of God. When Jesus told his disciples here in John 16, in a little while you will no longer behold me, and again in a little while you will see me, I have no doubt at all that he was referring to both of those new beholding days. He was prophesying his own resurrection day in the very near term, and he was prophesying our glorification day in the long term. But there's a third new beholding day that falls between those two. And I believe it's actually the one that is most in focus in this upper room discourse. That day came for the disciples at the first Feast of Pentecost following Jesus' ascension. For all the rest of us whom God draws into his family, that day comes the moment that we hear and believe the good news, the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation. That's Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. You know what those two verses say happens when we hear and believe? It says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a down payment of God's, of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. That down payment is the Holy Spirit. From that moment on, <laughs> beloved, from that moment on, the Holy Spirit shows us Jesus more perfectly, more vividly, more personally, more fully, more continually than the disciples ever got to see Him when He was standing in their midst. This is so very important for us to understand. 
We saw last week Jesus promised to the disciples that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all the truth and He would disclose to us things that belong, all the things He said, that belong to the Son and to the Father. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that the indwelling Spirit gives to us, He hands to us the mind of Christ through the words of Scripture. Spiritual thoughts combined with spiritual words. And that revelation of the very mind of Jesus is given to us not only in propositions, but in person. The Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us in person. In John 14, Jesus promised His disciples that He would ask the Father, the Father would give to them another helper that means advocate and enabler. He called him the Spirit of Truth. And that He, the Holy Spirit, would be with them forever. He told them the world does not behold Him or know Him, but you, you do know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And then listen to what He says in the next verse in John 14. I, Jesus speaking, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more. But you will behold me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Did the disciples have to wait a couple of thousand years for that to happen? No. They had to wait until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to them. We don't have to wait at all if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ because the moment that we came to faith, He sealed us with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit pitched His tent inside of us and He started showing us things about Jesus that we could never imagine. That's what Jesus promised to His disciples and to us here. That we will see Him and know Him Right now. Are you guys with me? Are you seeing the importance of this promise? We have this badly mistaken notion that these 11 men during the time that Jesus was here on earth in their midst had a great advantage over us. That they saw and knew Jesus far better than we can ever possibly see Him and know Him until we're in His presence in heaven. Because He was right there in their midst. And He's not not right here in our midst. But Jesus is telling them that that assessment is completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Because He is here, not just in our midst, but in us. Ever since the moment that God brought us to faith in Jesus Christ and filled us with the Spirit of truth, the second person of the Trinity, He has lovingly given to us, I'll say it again, an infinitely more complete view and understanding and intimate personal knowledge of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ than than the disciples ever had when He was right here on earth. Does that matter to us? Should that matter to us? 
Absolutely. God sets this exhortation before us in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father, of the throne of God. See, God is telling us there how to run the race that He has assigned to us until the day that we get to go into His presence. You think it's important for us to know how to do that? How is that? How do we run it? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who gave birth to our faith and the one who perfects our faith until the day that we stand in his presence, the author and perfecter. But how are we going to do that when he's not here? Well, here's how Jesus is telling us. The Holy Spirit, who has permanently pitched His tent within every believer, shows us Christ every day. In person. In person. The Holy Spirit discloses to us, He hands to us all the things that belong to the Son and to the Father. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. These things He has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And the means by which the Spirit reveals both the Son and the Father to us is through His Word. We get to see Christ in each other too, but the perfect presentation of Christ to us is His Word. And where we mess up is we think that that this is just stuff about Jesus. We come to the Word to know stuff about Jesus. When what we're supposed to do is come to the Word of the Lord to meet the Lord of the Word. We have been handed the personal knowledge of the One who saved us. The One with whom we're going to spend eternity. And we treat We treat that gift as a hassle. This is our life, beloved. To know and to trust and to follow and to obey the One who bought us to be His eternal treasure. When we come to the Word of the Lord to behold and meet and know the Lord of the Word, the Holy Spirit is all over that. (laughs) He shows us the Father and the Son more fully than we would ever have thought possible. I hope you believe that. Oh, I hope you believe that. The third unspeakably valuable gift that Jesus promised to His disciples and to us in these final words before His death is that we are wonderfully loved by the Father. He said to them, The Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. He brought us to faith in His Son and He made us lovable to Himself. 
by putting us in His Son. Jesus ties that guarantee of the Father's love toward us to the promise that whatever we ask the Father in His name, He will give us. Back in John 14, He said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments and I will ask the Father. I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. Now in chapter 16, He says, In that day, that day He's been talking about, that day when you have received the indwelling Holy Spirit, when you behold Me like no one else has ever beheld Me before, in that day, you will ask in My name. And I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you. You see what changed there? Before the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to pitch His tent in these eleven men, they had to go to Jesus to get to the Father. Now you say, well, Jesus is the mediator. We still have to go to Him to get to the Father. That's absolutely true. But you know what our mediator has done? He has blown open the doors of our access to God the Father. The veil is destroyed. Our high priest has opened the door and said, come on in. You can step into your Father's throne room any minute of any day and know that you were not just heard, you are loved. You are loved. By the God who created the universe, you are loved. You are treasured. You are cherished. How's that for equipment? We bring our request directly to our Heavenly Father knowing that His endless grace is available every moment of every day to us because of Jesus. How's that for equipment? And when we bring our request to, us, uh, to Him, he promised, Jesus promises over and over and over that when we bring our request to us, He gives us every single thing that we ask for in the name of Jesus. Now, that does not mean that if we use the words in the name of Jesus like some sort of Christian mantra that we have a carte blanche with God and He's just going to give us our our, BMW or whatever it is that we want. Because in the name of Jesus means that we are asking in keeping with the character and the agenda of Jesus. And when we do that, God doesn't withhold anything from us. He lavishes upon us everything we could possibly need and more. How does our Father give us daily the many wonderful things that bring glory to Him and blessing to us as His children? Through the Holy Spirit. Luke 11, there's this astonishing little twist in this passage in Luke 11. Same passage as in Matthew, but there's one little phrase that is markedly different. In Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to the multitudes. In Luke chapter 11, He's talking to His disciples. Let me read the Luke passage. It says, Luke 11, starting at verse 10, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? (laughs) 
Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, and I always love that, that's God's assessment of my parenting skills. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, listen, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? In Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is talking to the multitude, that phrase, that, that clause says, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? But here, to His disciples, Jesus replaces that phrase, what is good, with the phrase, the Holy Spirit. Think for a moment about that equivalence. It's powerful. Every good thing that God is giving us now every day comes to us through one incredible gift. And that gift is a person. The indwelling Holy Spirit. All of the many blessings that we enjoy as children of God, all of the enablement that we have been given to act as ambassadors and image bearers of Christ in this world, all that we now behold and know of the Son and of the Father. All that has been disclosed to us about our amazing God. All of the outpouring of the Father's perfect love toward us as His children. All of those things come to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We were talking on Wednesday and and, uh, one brother in the conversation said, We don't talk much about the Holy Spirit. And I've thought a lot about that. And the reason, by the way, the reason, the kind of rationale in the the evangelical church for not talking a lot about the Holy Spirit is because he doesn't talk a lot about himself. He didn't come to glorify himself. He claimed to glorify the Son and the Father through the Son. And so we say, okay, then we're not supposed to talk about the Holy Spirit. But if you take that same logic and you apply it to Jesus, you wouldn't be talking about him either. Because who did he talk about? His Father. All the time, He talked about His Father. He talked about the witness of His Father. He said He came to speak the words of His Father. He came to do the works of His Father. So why are we talking about Jesus? Because we're supposed to glorify Jesus. He glorified His Father and we're supposed to glorify our triune God. Guys, there is not one reason that we should not be talking about the Holy Spirit a lot. He is to us our perfect, constant connection with God. And God jealously desires the Spirit that He has made to dwell within us. We need to let Him do His thing. And we need to know what He has promised to us that He is doing. It's a whole lot. It's a whole lot. God sent, God sent from heaven to earth His only begotten Son to die in our place. And then He sent from heaven to earth His Spirit to take up permanent residence in us. Beloved, I'm going to ask again, how equipped are you to do the assignment that God has given to you? You are equipped beyond your wildest imagination. You know what Paul says about the power that is at work within you? 
in Ephesians 3, he says that power, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he says that he is, that person is able to do what? Exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine. How's that for a quick? Is there something better that you're waiting for God to give to you to prove the perfection of His love for you now that He has given His Son to die in your place and His Spirit to connect you to Him every minute of every day? Is there something better that you're waiting for God to give you so that you will finally be outfitted to do the assignment that He has given to you? Brothers and sisters, it's time for us to stop thinking of ourselves as under-equipped. <laughs> That's such an insult to God. It's time for us to start believing the precious and magnificent promises that God has set before us. Ephesians 1.3 says, We, you and I who belong to Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How's that for equipment? What do we lack to do the assignment? Nothing. In Paul's prayer to the saints at the end of Ephesians 1, I'll quit with this, he doesn't ask for the saints to get some kind of additional supply from God that God hasn't given. You know what he asks? He asks that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so that they will see what they have been given. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. And then he says it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him above every authority and every dominion and every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. He put all things in subjection under His feet. And then he says in chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then he prays now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Dear Father, it's hard to add to that prayer, but we simply simply come to You, Lord, and we ask that You would open our eyes. That, that when we are stubborn and we kind of pinch our eyes closed and we try, to, we try to get through this life believing the lie that we are under-equipped for the task You have filled our hands to do. Lord, we pray that You would humble us under Your mighty hand. We pray that You would force open 
these feeble, fearful, confused eyes so that like Elisha's servant, we would see the magnitude of your perfect provision. And we would know, not only is it well with our souls, but we have everything we need, Father. We have everything that we need to see your kingdom on this earth spread all over this earth through the likes of us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.